Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegich. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking to Chris Dart, who has been in the field of technology since 1996 when he was troubleshooting issues with FileMaker Pro and Macintosh systems. He's the technology director at Friends School of Minnesota, a K-8 Quaker school in St. Paul. He's a developer here at 10.7, and he is also one of the founding members of the Red House community, a small intentional community formerly in the heart of St. Paul. Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's technology, man. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome. I, I think you forgot to mute yourself or unmute yourself. It's nice to have you on. Yeah, well, it's good to be here. So shall we start where we always start? Where are you from and where did you grow up? I uh, was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but only lived there for about four years. And my dad uh, was a doctor. He got a position in the Marshfield Clinic in Marshfield, Wisconsin, which is right in the middle of the state. They have a large clinic there, surprisingly large given the location. Um, so we moved there in 1974 or so. And, and I um, grew so I grew up there and graduated from high school there. Then I went to McAllister College in St. Paul. And I've kind of been in the Twin Cities ever since. McAllister in St. Paul. Um, you ended up studying cultural anthropology there. What is cultural anthropology? Well, cultural anthropology is uh, is basically the study of how humans construct their world together. It's a little different from sociology. Sometimes the line gets blurred, but it's a bit more storytelling than statistics, I think would be a good way of differentiating the two fields. And you majored in ethnography and medical anthropology, correct? Yes, yes. Okay, I want to learn a little more about both of those majors, but I'm also fascinated how that led to a career in technology. Uh, you know, a lot of the guests <laughs> sure. we've had on the show end up studying something that's liberal arts related or non-science related, but end up in technology. So l- let's hear it. Well, uh, so ethnography is uh, is basically um, a systematic way to get uh, into the minds of a people in a particular subculture or group. And uh, there's a sort of many different structured processes to do that. You want to get sort of uh, a collection of uh, what they might call a taxonomy of ideas or terms that, you know, a hierarchy of, of notions. And a medical anthropology is, is specifically the study of how people view health and illness. So, for instance, a good example is um, if you're studying... Um, uh, like if if you mention cancer to a kind of oncologist, for instance, they they're going to want to know what specific cancer, what are the genetic coding on it, how long did you have it, what stage was it? Very specific questions to the average person on the street. The medical anthropology of that is cancer is a serious disease whose treatment seems sometimes worse than the disease itself, which isn't true, but it's, uh, you know, it's a perception and that's how people see it. And when people get cancer, they get scared. It's a lot of lingering culture perceptions around that. So that's kind of what medical anthropology studies is. How do people perceive health and illness? How do they respond to health and illness? Now, how that all ties together to technology, um, I think the way that I use it 
is, um, you know, I'd started out, I didn't have very good math instruction, uh, science instruction. I don't want to really blame the teachers, but it was sort of a, I didn't really feel like it was the right fit for me in college. Uh, but when I started working in as a community organizer in the 90s, I, I realized more and more that it was just not the right job for me at being, you know, I, I did use a lot of ethnography there to find out about what priorities people had, what, you know, what do they consider concerns or uh, goals, what, and uh, collectively what were the views of the people try to synthesize that into some kind of uh, way to help them take action in their world. And um, what I ended up doing, because uh, community organizing is notoriously open-ended, is you end up, uh, I ended up sort of um, finding sucker in technology and and sort of, um, you know, there's a, it's a nice, it's got sort of a fairly closed process. You you know, there's a problem, you can solve it. You can say that you're done, or at least you have an idea of how to solve it. Things are a little more uh, sort of closed or, fin you know, uh, tight, tidier, I think. And, um, and I started helping people out with technology, and eventually I, I continue to use ethnography when I communicate with clients. It's finding out how they see things uh, Especially when you get deep into the field, it's really important to be able to step outside of it, much like the example of the oncologist versus the average person, you know, uh, that sometimes uh, treatment can be difficult for people because the doctor seems aloof or they talk about things in ways that are too complicated. And in the same way, when people are dealing with technology, uh, you know, it, it is like Arthur C. Clarke said, uh, you know, fairly akin to magic in a lot of ways. And even to me, some things... You know, and I know we hear about that with AI, that there's a good deal of it that we have to use AI to figure out because we don't even understand it. And, um, and so anyway, that's, that's sort of a, that's how I ended up, that's how I use it now. I think I still use it as a way to sort of, I use the tools to help communicate with people. So chances are pretty good that you have um, a better understanding and perhaps a deeper interest in our current politics from an ethnographic standpoint than you than any of the rest of us maybe <laughs> it's hard to get outside your own when it's an emotional thing like politics it's hard to get outside of your own perspective but that's something that i try to do and i think it's a good discipline um yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to get too much into politics, so I'm going to ask a follow-up question. Um, so your your studies in anthropology led to a career in technology, but you also were at school at the um, University of Liverpool in England. Is that correct? Well, I you know they were one of the first bricks and mortar schools uh, to provide an online program, so I did everything right here in St. Paul. Oh, but you did. It was like with people from all over the world, and it was, you know, it was a little clunky. They had this interface for chat. It was back in 97, 2006, 7, 8, I think. And, um, and it was pretty, it was a pretty rigorous program. I have to say, uh, you know, I looked at all the different programs, and uh, I don't think the U of M had one yet at the, at the Humphrey. I think it was where they were offering it. And then University of Chicago at Urbana-Champaign. I had a program, but it wasn't really, it hadn't, I think that a lot of them were still sort of dipping their toes in it. And I guess Liverpool just decided to dive in. And in England, they have a, um, a system that, as my understanding, is that they have a review board. Some sort of unusual is that uh, all the courses that you take at a, at a university that's accredited by the government, so it's not like there are private accreditors, 
created by the government that they review the coursework and they review the courses to make sure that an A at Liverpool and an A in Birmingham and an A in, you know, in, uh, um, at, the, at the new school or wherever is the same, like that you, know, you, don't, you don't get grade inflation in one place. So sometimes you get a grade and then uh, maybe uh, a few months later, there's a review, like a sort of um, sample. They just like pick a course at random. There's a review, and, and then you, your grade goes down. You're like, ah, <laughs> <duh>. <laughs> I think that's. I think that was my understanding. I, I don't know for sure because it was sort of you know it, it was a little difficult to do that um, uh, online. It was still a new technology. There was still a lot of like you know it was hard to. There's a lot of things you miss when you're trying to communicate with people in person. You know you can have like a a get together at a coffee shop and sort of go over the coursework and there there was a you know strict strict rules about collusion and I think people were really afraid to do anything outside of you know chat outside of the main thread because they were afraid that it might be construed as collusion and so it was very strict. Wow, I didn't realize that your experience with remote work and remote learning was um, that went that far back. You didn't have any kind of video solution. No, it was all it was all text, and there, no, no, and they didn't offer the, the lectures were basically just a word document, you know, and then we would discuss it. So it's kind of what they call flipped education, where you basically read the lecture on your own and then spend your time in the in the sort of class chat room, talking about the lecture, and you had to cite everything, you know, every time you talked, which was an interesting thing, is that you can't talk out of your butt, you know, you have to actually, <laughs> you have to actually cite you know, your, your sources. And, and, uh, and, and so that was, it was a, it was pretty, it was pretty interesting. And I, I did learn a lot. I got a good overview of all the technology that was available at the time. And, uh, and so that was interesting. And when you graduated, did you, did you go over to England to walk down the I, stage? I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to, but I just, um, I think it was just timing didn't work and it was, you know, I, uh, I just, yeah, it would have, it, Liverpool, I think is kind of like, I don't want to just, you know, like make, offend anybody, but it's kind of like Gary or, or Toledo or something. It's just sort of like this, not, it's not a very, I mean, it didn't seem like a very interesting place, you know, it's like the Beatles were there, but otherwise it's kind of just another industrial town that's kind of hit on hard times, but the school was very good. You know, they've got a good program there, but no, I, th- I thought about it. Just timing wasn't right. And in between um, doing your studies at McAllister and at Liverpool, I mean, there were about 10 years or so there. um, And I would assume that was kind of the beginning of the arc into technology. Um, But that's also about the same time where you founded an intentional community, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. I'm fascinated by an intentional community. My wife and I have talked about it ourselves for a number of times, but more, more, more as an idea uh, other than something we would do. Um, so can you give the listeners a definition of what an intentional community is? Well, it can be anything from, say, an Amish community, you know, in central Wisconsin, for instance, or um, to, uh, you know, sort of maybe more um, on the darker side, something like, uh, you know, uh, um, the David Koresh group, you know, I mean, you can have a variety of things. It's where people, but then for the most part in our context, and I think for the most part, um, intentional community is, it's, 
it can be anything from those things to just more than roommates, you know, where you have more of a commitment to each other and you, and you maybe have some shared resources, um, and you, uh, you make a commitment to being present with each other more than you would have say you were just friends living in a house together or, um, you know, room, a rooming house or something like that. It's, it's, it's definitely, it's, uh, and so there's that, it's a big range, and, but that's kind of, yeah. And you started the community that you're a part of in 1997. How many co-founders did you have? There were six of us. And, and whose idea was it? Um, you know, I think it, ultimately it was my idea. I had, there were other people who were very interested in it, but I had been sort of pushing for it and talking to friends about it and talking it up. And there were about 10 people who ended up being interested in it. And it was a pretty tough process to sort of decide. It was a lot of, um, you know, those GRE logic questions where it's like, Mary will only pe eat pizza on Tuesday if John has hamburgers on Monday. <laughs> it was kind of like figuring out who would be willing to live with each other and, and come up with a group. And so you know, some people were disappointed they didn't get to participate in it. And, you know, I could look back and say, well, it would have been interesting if they had been a part of it and not these other people. And, you know, but that's how it turned out. And we had all been, um, we were all alumni of a program called the Lutheran Volunteer Corps, um, you know, at some point in the last few, previous few years. And, uh, and that's a program where you spend a year or two living in uh, a core city somewhere in the United States. There are some, they have locations all over and, uh, and you have a household of four to eight people and you work in some kind of social justice work. Um, and you pool all your food costs and, uh, you have about at the time, $110 to spend on personal spending. So it's like living in sort of, in sort of intentional poverty, but not really. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you know, you have your safety net that's, that a person actually living in poverty doesn't have. You've got your parents, you've got a savings account, you know, whatever. Um, but it's a way of, and, uh, and the three tenets were simplicity, community, and social justice. And so we focused on those three things. And I think I really, once I got out of LVC, I really missed it. I felt like I had not expected to find community, intentional community to be the, the, the most, it was, it was the, it, for me, it was the most um, satisfying part of the LVC experience. And so we got together and we found a house in St. Paul and it was a pretty nice place. It had rooms where two people doubled up, but otherwise we all had our own room. And we basically modeled it after the LVC model where we had a food budget um, and we would put, we'd pool our money and this stayed the same throughout the entire time. Somewhere between 100 and 130, it ended up being a month that was all for the food. And you would put it on a whiteboard. This stayed the same the whole time as you would basically write your list of ingredients, either for your own, like sort of like if you wanted coffee or breakfast food or whatever, or your, what you plan to cook for the house for that week, put it on the whiteboard and then a person or a team were volunteered to, to go and do the shopping. And we had a joint account for a long time, a joint checking account, and you would do the shopping. And it was set up so that we'd have enough money in the pool that we could 
we could basically accommodate pretty much everyone's personal desires. So like if you drank coffee and no one else did, you know, that's fine. Eight, eight, eight bucks, a, 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 you know, maybe every two weeks or whatever. And, or you wanted marshmallow mateys that was popular for a while for a couple of us, <laughs> you know, that we would get that and it was fine. If somebody else didn't like to eat breakfast, you know, it, it ended up coming out in the wash. You were still spending less than you would be had you been living alone. Cause you would get, a meal cooked for you once every, you know, once a, you would four nights out of five in a week. Um, we started out with six, but it ended up going down to five people, then four at one point. But, you know, you would get, you know, as much as four nights a week cooked for meals cooked for you and then leftovers. Usually we cooked big batches, stews and things like that so that you really didn't have to spend a whole lot of your personal money on food unless you wanted to go out or whatever. And was the was the um, intentional community some sort of a legal organization or a? Uh, you mentioned that you mentioned that joint checking account, um, but it wasn't like it was a specific co-op or a legal construct that you had to do your taxes together, for example. No, there was no there was no um, joint. Uh, ownership, no, like, shares that you purchase. Basically, I mean, the closest thing to a share is just that you would put your rental deposit in the, the kitty, or basically you'd pay the, the person moving in if you're leaving. Some, you know, somebody's leaving, then you would put your money in the kitty that you would pay them, your rent deposit. And, and so, that, Chris, what, do was, you think it was easier to rent or to buy a house for the intentional community? We had looked at uh, renting, and a lot of the houses that were in our price range were really crappy. So we uh, we started looking at buying, and it turns out the monthly payments for a mortgage were uh, quite reasonable. And so uh, finding a house that would accommodate us, four to five bedrooms, was a f fairly easy process. And we found one not too far from where we were. And... Uh, and we uh, so just one one housemate and I decided to buy. We we had looked at doing cooperative type venture, but that the funding wasn't there, and um, and it was it was hard to sort of organize a structure in a single dwelling. It'd be more like if you wanted to buy a fourplex or something. So yeah, we bought the house, and um, three of us moved, and we opened up. Uh, at the time, we would advertise by putting flyers up in uh, coffee shops and advertising in the women's press. We found that other papers didn't, you'd get a lot of people who didn't read it or just looking for a house, a you know, place to live. And, and we wanted to really make sure people understood what they were getting into. Uh, it was not just housemate situation. So how is the marketing of intentional communities and finding new housemates changed then since you started this in, you know, 20 years ago? Oh, a lot. <laughs> that we I bet. so so uh Craigslist came along in, you know, I don't remember about that when what that was, but that became a way to do it, but we would get we would get emails saying, you know, cancel your post. Uh, I'll advance you two thousand dollars. My height is this. My measurements are this. And it was like, what? <laughs> you know, what? just, just <laughs> like they were looking for. I don't know what. I, I you know. So, so we would. Uh, um, so I, I started do developing websites, and I had, you know, and decided to create a web form that people could email. And I can't remember when that was, but we would we would redirect people to our 
website to fill out the form. I don't remember when about we did this. May have been late two thousands, um, and and have them fill it out instead of um, in, instead of of answering to the Craigslist email, and that filtered out almost everyone. That you know, you had to read through the form. You had to answer certain questions. Nothing big, but just you know, acknowledge that you'd read it, and this is not a housemate situation, but there's a bit more commitment to it. And that really improved the quality of the people that we were getting, because before it was really hard to find people. I mean, you just, there isn't a network. At about the same time, an organization that's been around for a long time called the Fellowship of Intentional Communities, um, we've, we discovered that, I don't, somebody pointed it out to me, and uh, it's ic.org, and they have a huge database of intentional communities, and you fill out a form asking what kind you are. Are you a single leader? Everyone pays everything in. Is it a commune? Is it a religious community? Do you have land? Are there shares? Uh, all that kind of stuff. You know, what is your corp- what is your structure like? How do you choose your leadership? All that kind of thing. And uh, so we would fill it out, and we got people interested through that. Um, some people would go there and find a link to our website and then fill out the form, and other people found us through Craigslist. And And then we would also occasionally post on Facebook, but you know, really, the intentionalcommunities.org and the Craigslist were the way that we got most of the people. And then word of mouth uh, was another way. And I would assume you did a background check and all kinds of other um, references for the people that you're inviting into the house once the applicant was accepted. Accepted? Not really. We never did background checks. Um, and wow. <laughs> <it> sounds, good. <laughs> yeah. sounds scary. Well, the way it works is you... And I think a lot of communities do this. When you're asking for people to make a commitment, you know, first of all, you filtered out people who are a little shady. I mean, it's like they, 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 they you know, people who are going to take the risk to try to come and stay with you and, and interact with you. And, and that, um, so we, um, we always had people over for a meal and we would, you know, just have dinner with them or lunch or tea or something, snacks. And we would talk to them and then we'd give them a tour of the house. And then we would have a conversation in the living room about their favorite activities. Are they from the area? What do they like to do when they're not, you know, what do they, you know, where do they work? Um, a lot of that stuff helped us determine, you know, if somebody had a, had a good paying job and we never had any real trouble there were a couple situations where we where the it was really when it was really hard to find people and sometimes we made decisions that were a little too expedient and not the best i don't think that uh, that only happened once and that person left within a week and we got to keep the rent deposit and you know it was it was it was okay it was a little weird but um that was like a long, it was a long distance, like we did a phone interview, and we just, we decided we'd never do that again. You know, you have to come and meet with us, um, that we have to meet you face to face. And we've had some oddballs come. I mean, there was a person who was nor, nor, like not uh, sort of psychologically typical, I would have to I'd say, and, and that was, it was hard to get them to leave. It was a little awkward, but... You know, I think it's kind of part of living in community is taking a risk with people. And so we, 
we really wanted to make sure that um, it it felt um, open. You know, it, it's an open process and a and a sort of positive view. So lots of gut checks, lots of um, FaceTime, uh, spending time with potential um, uh, new community member. Everybody gets a say. It, it sounds like that's um, most certainly enough instead of a instead of or in addition to a background check. So I'm I'm kind of not surprised that works, and it seems to be completely consistent with the tenets of an intentional community. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we don't want to, we wanted to make sure that people feel like they're joining a group as an equal. And that, uh, and that I think in some ways, you know, if you're, you're doing a lot of checking on people, you know, okay, you know, you, you look at their Facebook profile or MySpace page and, but MySpace, yeah, back in the day. <laughs> blast from the past. Right. <laughs> so it sounds like you were at around five or six people in your intentional community. Um, can you talk to me about the size? Is it, is it typical of what other intentional communities are? How did you guys land on that number? Well, I think it's hard to find housing that's big enough to have more people, but the U of M, there's a co-op at the U of M that's a student co-op. I don't know in what way that it's a co-op, but I've been there and it's, uh, and it's like an old, uh, it's like a frat house, you know, it's very big, lots of rooms, industrial kitchen. Um, and I think for us in a small community, it has to be between five and seven. Um, in LVC, that was, that was certainly the way it would Lutheran volunteer Corps. That's the way it worked best. Um, you have fewer than five, and it can often end up being three and one, where three people sort of get along and one person doesn't, and they feel excluded. With five, it's often a moving target where there can be three and two, and then and then that switches a little bit. But it's always a little um, that that way. Then uh, nobody feels isolated in the group unless they're unless they're not very good at socializing, which that. That, that that did happen at the community and that was frustrating when you get somebody who's there and isn't very good at being you know they don't have a good, very good social skills or whatever yeah i i think the cooperative in um at the university of minnesota that you mentioned i think that one's called students cooperative i was reading about that um earlier and i, th I think they're at about is it a dozen, maybe two dozen folk, but you're but right. Two it, dozen. It's like a three, it's like a three story house and has, you know, five bathrooms and really community living. Yeah. looks like a college dorm. It's kind of crappy inside, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but it's, you know, I mean, it's like college student crappy. It was like what, you know, there, but it's, you know, very idealistic. There's a lot of, you know, like there's a lot of vision there. There's a lot of sort of idealism in that place. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to do as part of the intentional community? Oh, well, we had a housemate and this person was, we done, they, they, they matched us up really well. They were very good fit, but, um, they had a problem with substance abuse and they had, they had mm. been, they were on the wagon. They were working very hard to keep on the wagon. We felt like we would be able to do it, but we really didn't know much about that. We don't, I didn't, you know, know how that worked. And she ended up, 
falling off the wagon and it happened gradually. We didn't really understand what was going on. She just seemed more and more isolated. And then she took, I take a medication that's uh, restricted and she took a, took it. And, um, and then she ended up getting very sick with a heart condition and she was in the hospital in the ICU. And we had to tell her mom that, she had to move out and it was really hard because she was you know on death's door at the time and she did actually die about six months later and it was very it was really a challenge because we we didn't have the tools to do we realized that we can't we can't be all things to all people you know the people who come to the community have to be um stable they have to be you know uh, um, you know, well-employed. Those are the things that are really critical, and and that you know, we're all we were all very, you know, like want to make everybody feel welcome, and you know, we shouldn't be discriminating against people. And, but in this case, you know, she just wasn't ready, and and then you know, along with that, compounding health issues, she just hurt you know, it hurt her too much, and it and then she stole, and it was like you know, that was just that we couldn't have that. So that was the mm-hmm. hardest thing. My goodness. And was that early on in the intentional community no, or was that later on? It was later on. It was like after what I would call like sort of probably the 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 uh the the most the most exciting period in the community we had three you know, there were there were just the it was a good mix of people for a while and then one person moved out and and then this person moved in and um, she tried, we tried, but it, yeah, it was, so it was probably about halfway into the life or three quarters of the way into the life of the community. So it wasn't like it started, it was when you first started out that it kind of put you off actually doing this. You had already had a ton of experience and, and, um, unfortunately had this issue. I was going to ask you about, um, how you decided and what happened um, when you decided that it was time to end the intentional community? How did that all shake out? Because I know that happened recently. It did, and and uh, and I'm glad that to have this opportunity because uh, having talking about it now that I've had a little time to reflect on it, the community was disbanded in uh, March of this year, and. It had been coming a long time. I'm 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 in my late forties, and I was starting to feel a little old. Most of the people who would come to the community were in their late twenties and early thirties. You know, newly entered into the professional career or in college uh, for graduate school or something like that. They were, um, uh, and but I was feeling older and older. <laughs> but also, <laughs> we had a, a dynamic where the person. I originally bought the house with sold it and we and we and bought it and then a person that was there who seemed like a very she's she was a very responsible person and it was an I didn't want to end the community so she bought she bought out the former owners co-owners a portion of it and we refinanced and it turned out she just she had a very different understanding of what community would could be or should be, and she's a very transactional view of it. Um, it certainly is a way to save money, and she was very interested in 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 limiting her expenses, um, and a very frugal person, but not the most. Uh, she did not have very good 
skills at sort of engaging with people and um, inviting people in, making them feel welcome. And it got to be increasingly a burden on, on me to sort of make sure that everyone who was new was welcome and and to sort of, uh, you know, build the cohesion with new members. Because that that's always a job when you've got a new person is you want to make sure that they feel like they are a part of the whole you know, part of the group and that they're welcome to be an equal. And, um, and that, it, you know, that didn't work very well. And I think it was, and she was starting to feel, I think that too, that, that it was more than, it was outside of her comfort area. And, you know, it took a long time and it was hard and, but it was, it was the right thing to do. It was time to end. Um, I had thought at one point that I would just do intentional community until I retired and then move into a senior living facility where I would just continue, <laughs> but I'm taking a break now. One of my housemates I met, Emily, we, we, we ended up finding that we clicked really well and, and fell in love and we decided to buy a house together uh, this summer and, we, and we've been living here. So it was, it's a big change for me, but it was a time to do it and I feel, I feel good about it. I feel like, you know, it wasn't how I would have wanted to end it, but I could never picture how it could end easily, you know, just... Well, congratulations on the new house, and you've kind of done an extension of the intentional community, except it's just two members now. Two members and a dog, and then over the summer we tried raising ducks because the house had a duck run, and um, and all six of them died, and so we we oh, went no. through our we went through our first six housemates very quickly, <laughs> but now we got a dog and it's going okay. So yeah, I, I hope that lasts longer than your ducks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you not miss now that you're no longer part of the community? Oh, I think the kind of things that most people would would think of when they think of living with others. You know, who's who's leaving the dishes undone? Uh, who's got sort of peculiar quirks or doesn't clean up after themselves or hogs the TV, which really ended up not being as big a problem later on. Um, it was more getting people out of their rooms and back into the common space. But um, and then and then dealing with personality conflicts. That was you know those are the things that I don't miss. Very, very diplomatic, Chris. Um, I appreciate <laughs> that. Before we wrap up talking about intentional communities, I do have a couple more questions. What would be the best place to go online um, to find out more about intentional communities, uh, good resources to look at in case uh, there are any listeners out there that are interested in, sure. in following up? Well, intentional com the Fellowship of Intentional Communities is still a pretty good resource. Um, it's definitely for finding like places where you would you know live like a farm or something like that but there's also they have small communities like ours the other place is that there's a group online on the facebook called on facebook called uh, intentional communities twin cities or minneapolis st paul i can't remember the name but i can share it with you when i when we get off and and that's um and that's a place where uh, there's some pretty active communication of people looking for housemates, looking for houses, um, wanting to start one up. And uh, just for the Twin Cities area, I don't have anything bigger than that, but uh, that's one of the, uh, that, that's the two resources that we've pointed people to in the past. Okay, we'll uh, get that information from you offline and we'll publish that in the show notes and in the transcript on the web. Now, I know you were in a bagpipe band. 
And I also, if I'm not mistaken, seem to recall that you were in a barbershop quartet. Is that right? I'm in a barbershop chorus. A quartet is quite, uh, especially if you're uh, um, serious about it, is, is like, a, like any kind of band, is quite a commitment. But um, the, uh, um, I, I sing in the Great Northern Union Chorus, which is a barbershop harmony society, a very competitive chorus. In uh, Can you hear my dog snoring? At, <laughs> he's just... <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, I can. Hold on a second. I don't know how that's going to get transcribed. Uh, hang on a second. Can we pause for a moment? Or we could leave it on. That's also okay. fine. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, she she does that. She's got this very. She's a little tiny dog, but she snores quite loudly. Anyway, the Great Northern Union um, is a competitive barbershop chorus. We've been in the top ten at every international contest we've been to since the chorus. Uh, um, was formed, and we um, wow. So barbershop chorus is a little different than quartet uh, because you can do things that a quartet can't really do. I mean, you can you can push the voices a little farther because you don't need all the voices on every note all the time, and so you can hold notes longer, and um, and you can um, you know, and, and you can push the range stuff like that and so so it's kind of uh it's kind of fun and and it, you know i think that probably a lot of people would say that the first the 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 best place to to be when you're when in a barbershop chorus is on the risers cuz you know that's where you get the goosebumps you hear the voices around you and those seven chords resolving to a to, you know dominant cor- or tonic chord or whatever resolving is just it's very pleasing and powerful experience it's it's high energy when is your next performance um it's in december i can put that in the show notes i don't have the the actual date on on mind but it's in mind but it's our uh, but it's uh in, in early december and we're you know it's a christmas themed show a holiday show um and uh, but we'll be doing our contest set and some other um contest related type pieces so that'll be fun it sounds like a lot of fun i remember singing in the choir in high school for four years and it was some of the most fun i'd ever had with a group of people so um that's awesome do you have a website yeah gnusings.com gnusings.com do you know about minnesota sings the community sing uh, we've gone to those a number of times in the last few years, and it is such fun. You show up, uh, sometimes it's in a park, sometimes it's in a community center, um, and it's led by two or four people, and they have songs that they sing, hippie songs, you know, hymns. Um, they get they hand out all of these uh, pamphlets with all the words, and if you don't know the melodies, doesn't matter. You sing as best you can. That was a lot of fun. Going to those has been a lot of fun, and I think um, I think their website is mnsings.com. That's what reminded me was um, gnusings.com, kind of similar. Well, before we go, um, could you recommend a book that I should read and that the listeners should take uh, uh, interest in? Well, I've, uh, I think that the book that's probably the best, um, the the best for this for tech uh, listeners would be "Exploding the Phone," um, and it's a book by, um, that I I listened to earlier this year, 
and it was about sort of the original hackers of uh, the um, phone, uh, the the Bell telephone network. Um, it's it's a blind kid who um, in Florida, and he the phone is kind of a place for him where it's it puts him on an even playing field with other people because sighted people have the same you know it's the, the same disadvantage or advantage. And uh, but he starts to hear the tones. They use that multi um, the multi tone uh, uh, signaling, and uh, I can't remember what, the, what it's called. But he um, he learns how to mimic those sounds, and he eventually figures out how to basically hack the phone system using uh, using whistles. And another guy uh, had got a slide whistle from Captain Crunch that he learned to use, and they, would, they sort of created this underground community of hackers who'd figured out how to crack into the phone system and do fun stuff like just create um, conference calls. And all this was before the digital, before everything was switched to digital, so the 60s, 70s era. And they got into trouble with the law. And, you know, mm. back then, you know, Mob Bell was the law. I mean, it was sort of, you know, if they, right. they wanted the FBI to go after you, you would, they, you know, it, was, it would happen. It was easy. Yeah. So it's really so phone hacking. Yeah, exploding the phone. Um, and we can put, I can get you the, the full details in the notes. Um, I don't have the name of the author in front of me, but it's an entertaining read. Very interesting read. Very good. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Chris, thank you so much for spending your time with me. Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. Chris is online at cerebratorium.com. C-E-R-E-B-R-A-T-O-R-I-U-M.com. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.